Picture with me a perfect summer evening. First thing you think of might be your friends and family playing catch, a picnic with food, or even fireworks. But now, imagine more. The smell of grass, sound of trees blowing in the wind, and now, the wildlife around you. Bees and butterflies are as much a part of summer as hot dogs and apple pie. And now is the perfect time to learn more about them and how each of us can help their habitat. Hello and welcome to Young Living's podcast, The Wild Drop. My name is Jacob Young, your host. Young Living is the world leader in producing and distributing premium essential oils. And this podcast will provide you with drops of information about Young Living, including stories, history, product information, lots of little fun facts, and even more. Today, we have one of our senior scientists on the show. Welcome to the studio, Tyler Wilton. How are you doing, Tyler? Doing great. Thanks for having me here. Well, why don't you explain to all of our listeners who you are and what do you do and how you were brought into the world of Young Living? Yeah. Um, so Tyler Wilson, I've, um, I have a background in both chemistry and botany, and I've been with Young Living for, for 10 years now. I started with um, the quality control lab in Spanish Fork, and then after about a year, I moved to research and development. Fantastic. And um, yeah, focus a lot of my time on both analytical chemistry and plant biology. You seem to enjoy what you do. I do. I, I kind of have a dream job. <laughs> That's fantastic. And what are you doing now currently here at GHQ? Yeah, so all of my research revolves around uh, plant biology and chemistry of plants. So I, I manage a research greenhouse here. Um, I curate our aromatic plant herbarium. And then I spent a lot of time in the lab, too, analyzing samples, mostly essential oil samples. We like to hear that. And you've actually been able to write a few papers for Young Living as well, correct? Yeah, it's been a great opportunity. Over the past few years, um, I've been at least part of writing uh, a dozen papers. Those papers are probably really long, if I had to guess. <laughs> we try to keep some of them shorter, but it's hard. Yeah, they're pretty lengthy. I bet. Well, let's get into our topic of today, which is monarch butterflies. So I guess the first question is, is what are monarch butterflies and why should we be talking about them? Yeah, um, monarch butterflies are an iconic um, butterfly species native to North America. Um, and I guess the reason we're talking about them is they need help. We need to conserve them. Yeah, they're an endangered species right now, and I don't think there's that many left, unfortunately. Do you roughly know what those numbers are? I can't remember what Dr. Wilson told me what those numbers were recently, but he said they were very, very low. Yeah, it's actually not a straightforward question. So so, so the actual numbers of monarch butterflies, um, it's different based on which population. The, the Western population is much smaller than the Eastern population. The, in the Western population... Back in 1997 was one of their highest counts at 1.2 million monarch butterflies. Oh, wow. But then in 2020, really just two decades later, they are at an all-time low of around 2,000. Holy cow. Um, but they ha definitely have rebounded since then. This last count in 2022, they're up just over um, 300,000. Fantastic. Oh, in just two years, yeah. you've seen that much of an increase. Um, and then when you look at the eastern population, it's much larger. They don't count the actual numbers. They look at their overwintering site, and they say, how many hectares are they covering? Mm. And so at an all-time high, at least in our records, they're around 19 hectares. And right now, they're around two. According to the IUCN, um, they're a, an organization that looks at um, 
you know, conserving nature. Um, they consider endangered, but technically they're not considered endangered species. They're just an at-risk species. At-risk. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we, we still have time to do something about them and Absolutely, to bring them back great. to, you know, their full potential, mm-hmm. their full power. <laughs> and I guess... Once again, why monarch butterflies? Why are they so special to us? Why do we need to be paying attention? Why do we need to be making a rally cry behind this? Yeah, um, you know, not only are they a beautiful migrating butterfly, but they're also an important pollinator for our native plant species. Um, And they're, you know, an important part of our ecosystem. You know, just as well as I do that anything that kind of falls out of that loop of our ecosystem, well, there's this cycle. Other things that, you know, that survive off of that, whether it's a plant that needs it for pollination or another insect that needs it, well, then they're at risk too. Yeah. Unfortunately, it just disrupts the whole circle of life with everything that we're doing with the way that life is in the ecosystem of bugs and pollinators, and it it disrupts that all. Exactly. And it can't flow as smoothly as it once did. So what is Young Living doing? Obviously, we released a video not too long ago talking about the monarch butterflies and the steps that we're going through to kind of bring back the monarch population. It was a beautiful video. A huge congratulations to our creative team on that. And uh, you actually were featured in the video too, which was great. But what what are we doing uh, for the monarch butterflies for those who haven't seen the video? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and we'll be sure to put the link to that video that you mentioned um, in the YouTube description. Yeah. So our first steps, we, we started back in 2019. Um, there were a small group of us, and you know them, Chris Packer, yeah. Jesse Marshall, Ariel Polson, and I. Um, we caught wind of this, this need to conserve monarch butterflies. And so within that first year, we constructed the first four um, monarch way stations on Young Living property. So three in Utah and one in Idaho. Um, and since then, we've just been building off of that. We've also constructed way stations in um, Tabiona and also the St. Mary's Farm. And I guess I should define what way stations are. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so, so the reason monarch, the monarch population has been declining, um, well, it's not a simple reason. They're, they're, it's, it's multifaceted. Um, but one of the main reasons is they've had a huge decrease in habitat. Um, whether it's from construction, farms, what have you, we're, we're, we're killing their habitat. So way stations are a way to bring those back. And it's either a small pot, plot of land or a large plot of land that has three things, a water source, a nectar source for the adult butterflies, and then milkweed species for the monarch caterpillars. By nectar, do you mean just flowers in general or any plant in general that produces a nectar? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It, it's usually... Um, a mixture of both annuals and perennial flowering plants that they can get nectar from. Fascinating. Well, that's great. So with these way stations, do they have to be a certain size or do they just have to be a small area of this milkweed and nectar and water? Um, It almost sounds like you're creating a little swamp. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, in some ways, you know, there are milkweed species that, that do prefer wetter riparian areas. And so, yeah, at times it is a swamp. But no, it could be very small, 10 by 10 feet, or it could be a colossal size, 10,000 square feet. 
Fantastic. Yeah, I remember we were with Dr. Wilson and his wife, and we were continuing our bee study, and he happened to tell us about this、uh, way station. And so I got to learn a little bit about you know, the, the way station, the monarch butterflies, and, and it was so beautiful to see some of the butterflies that were around in that area. And I can't remember, but he was trying to find. Uh, just caterpillars on leaves to take pictures of and whatnot. So he was telling me kind of like how to identify them because they're really good, like they camouflage、uh, really well and, and blend in with their environment really well. And so I was like, oh, you mean something like that? And apparently I'd pointed out like a really rare one or something like that. But it was, it was beautiful to see the, the lengths that we've gone to to really preserve something that's so important to nature that maybe not a lot of people know of. And I love that we're also just. Really pushing for this and kind of being a leader in this area as well, because I honestly have not seen a lot published on monarch butterflies as far as them being endangered and, and what we need to do and the steps that we need to take. So it's really great to see that Young Living is doing something about that. And I'm just, I'm really happy that we're doing that. So we have two way stations down at Mona, correct? Correct. One here at GHQ. Yes. Oh, where is the one here at GHQ? Is it down kind of towards the herbarium? It's right by the, the greenhouse, right in front of the building. Okay, fantastic. And then the one up in Idaho, is that St. Mary's or Highland? So both, there's one on each location. Oh,、fantastic. and then the last one in Utah is at Tabiona, which we registered last year. That's right, fantastic. Where is that one? I haven't seen that one. So, right as you pull in through the gate,、um, we put a new sign, we planted a bunch of seeds、okay. last year. So, we need to go back this spring once all the snow melts and、yeah. work、there's、on that area a bit more. A lot of snow. <laughs> So, with these way stations, are these permanent homes for the monarch butterflies, or are we building these、uh, way stations so they have a place to kind of stay for a little bit, like a little motel for them? Because do they migrate? What, what, what exactly are these way stations doing for the monarchs? Yeah, that's a great question.、Um, it's best to think of them as hotels. And maybe a lot of them are motels, but ours is like a five star hotel. It is very <laughs> fancy. I've seen the one down at Mona. It's beautiful. So, so, monarch butterflies, you have two, in North America, you have two populations. You have the Western population, which is west of the Rockies,、yeah. and then the Eastern population, which is east of the Rockies.、Um, this Western population, which migrates through places we've talked about, Utah, Idaho, they overwinter in Southern California, just along the coast.、Mm -hmm. And then, It's typically three generations of monarch butterflies. For that first part of spring into summer, they'll migrate from Southern California up into、um, you know, the northern states and into Canada. Wow. And then often a single generation or a couple generations will migrate all the way back south for the winter. That is fascinating that they travel that far. Oh, they're fascinating creatures. Okay. In a lot of ways. Yeah. Wow.、Um, So, so, yeah, these way stations then, they're stopping their, their little motels for them to stop by where they can get nectar sources, they can lay eggs for that future generation, get water, and move on、yeah. on their migra migratory path. Okay, fantastic. And then what have we seen short term since starting? Have we seen an increase in the population? Have we seen increase in activity? H have we seen any benefits to having the way stations?、Ha What, what all have we seen with the research that we've done so far? Yeah.、Um, so, so I'll focus on the, the way station in Mona because that's the one I've been most involved in.、Um, when we first started in 2019, we had a very small patch of milkweed, and we were observing maybe five to 10 monarch butterflies in a single year.、Mm. Um, since then, there's been a huge increase. Yeah. And in this last year, in 2022, 
we saw at one point it was somewhere around three to four dozen monarch butterflies in a single day. Oh, wow. That is fantastic to hear in just that short of time that we've already had quite a significant increase in the population, or at least monarch butterflies coming to the way station as well. I know for, for Dr. Wilson, it was huge because he's like, look at all these monarch butterflies. And at the time, I didn't understand like what he meant by what he was saying. And I was like, yeah, they're they're butterflies. Of course they're here. It's like, no, you don't understand. Like these are these are close to endangered species. Like it's it's beautiful and great to see how many are actually here. Um and I and I didn't really like appreciate it at the time because I didn't realize the the extent of how in dire need our monarch butterflies are. So yeah. so just in in four years time now, we've already seen like a huge increase in the population. That is so good. So what we've learned after the fact too was you know, we had the perfect setup. You know, for instance, our farm in Mona, the adult butterflies, they'll stop by the goldenrod and the lavender mm-hmm. to get nectar. But at the time, and back in 2019 or before that, they didn't have anywhere to lay eggs on the milkweed. Yeah. So all we had to do was plant milkweed. They were coming for the nectar sources, which were already there. And now they're able to lay eggs for that future generation too. This may be a dumb question, but why milkweed specifically? Do you know? No, no, that's a, it's a perfect question. Um, the reason being is because milkweed species, um, and there's a lot of different species in Utah, there's 18 species alone. Um, and so there's a lot of species throughout North America, but they all contain a group of compounds called cardenolides and cardenolides. Um, they're toxic to most invertebrates, to most mammals. Mm -hmm. Um, they'll actually cause you to either get sick or eventually have cardiac arrest but that's because most mammals and insects metabolize those compounds. Monarch butterflies, they sequester them. They don't metabolize them. Oh. So they, that's really their only defense. So then anything that preys on them, it would eat it. And it would and get it would, sick. Exactly. Wow, interesting. So it's like a poison that they take as a defense mm-hmm. mechanism. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. And, and so they probably just eat a little bit of the, of the milkweed and then that's what... Is it, is it the scent or... or predators know that they eat milkweed and so that's what keeps them away yeah that's a perfect question too so adult monarch butterflies they'll lay their eggs um typically almost entirely on milkweed leaves and so then once those hatch the caterpillars that's the only thing that they eat okay um until they are ready to build their chrysalis and become a adult butterfly so it's already in their system that's why okay that's why predators don't want it okay that makes perfect sense but that iconic image of a monarch butterfly the black and orange pattern yeah so that pattern alone is what tells predators hey don't eat me you're going to get poisoned if you eat me and so you'll also notice there are other butterfly species that have a similar not the identical but a similar pattern to them yeah but they don't eat milkweed they don't have that toxic compound they're just using that mechanism to say hey uh we're i mean we're not poisonous, but we are. So don't eat us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's like everything basically in nature that's bright and beautiful. It's actually really dangerous. Don't touch it. <laughs> Just like the poison dart frogs. We actually got to see a few yeah. of them when we were in Peru. And or I'm pretty, maybe it wasn't exactly poison dart frogs, but like a subspecies or something like that. But the gentleman that was in the same area of us, he actually was doing, oh man, it was the study of frogs or insects or something like that. I can't remember what his what his PhD was or what he was going for. But we went on a night hike and he was showing us like all the frogs and the bugs and the snakes and everything that are in the Peruvian forest and whatnot. And he's like, oh, yeah, there's, there's so much wildlife here. And we got to see some 
really creepy stuff. Snakes, spiders, really cool lizards. And then he was showing us a few of these frogs and he's like, oh yeah, they're really tiny. And then Nadia, Chris's wife, yeah. uh, you know how just, she always wants to like <laughs> be able to touch stuff and, and try it and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, 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 don't touch that one. They are, because they are shiny and pretty and really colorful, that means they are dangerous. So don't do that. <laughs> so if it's the one thing nature has taught us is pretty animals are usually poisonous. Don't touch the tempting ones. <laughs> yeah, so fascinating. Well, what is something that, you know, obviously we're, we're rolling out of spring and now we're finally getting summer weather and whatnot. What's something that someone at home can do to kind of set up a, a way station or help the monarchs? Oh, great question. Um, so, so a lot of the, the scientific community has said that there's, you know, multiple reasons that the population is on a, is on a decline, both the Western and Eastern population. Mm -hmm. Um, I already mentioned that it's because of habitat loss. Yeah. Another big reason is because of um, herbicides and pesticides. Yeah. Um, glyphosate, uh, neonicotinoids, those are huge categories. So first thing I would always say is if anybody is using those in their own yards, stop. There's no need. Stop using herbicides and pesticides. Um, not only are they detrimental to monarch butterflies, but other pollinators that, are, that we need. Yeah. So stop using those. But then after that, if people can have a mixture of nectar-bearing plants, um, you know, perennials, annuals in their own yard, we don't really need a lot of grass and turf. What we need is more native flowering species, but then also throw in some milkweed species too. Yeah, that'd be fascinating. And like we were saying, you don't need a huge patch, just a little bit so they can stop rest, you know, recover and lay their eggs and then they're, they're good to go. Perfect. Uh, it can just be a tiny little, you know, one square patch or whatever it may be. And I love that you shared, you know, don't use herbicides or pesticides and it, it just, they don't do any good. Like they, they, they rob your soil of nutrients and then long-term effect for your soil it actually ruins it over time. Uh, so trust me, you're not doing yourself or your soil any good by using that stuff just reach out to a local farmer get some fresh manure some good manure uh, and that goes a long ways or juniper juniper wood chips which we have found that, that actually helps with uh increasing nutrient rich soil yeah um it's a great way if you can get your hands on juniper wood chips i'm sure you can probably find a place to get some and that's kind of like the best part about our young living farms and our locations is they're all already set up for all of this because we don't have to worry about herbicides or pesticides or sprays or whatever and we already have such nutrient rich ground and we're really really focused on just making sure that everything as organic and natural as it would be as you as you would see in nature obviously you wouldn't see just beautiful rows of lavender but <laughs> i i think you get what i mean yeah yeah in our in our farms they really create a way station oasis yeah you know you have like you said this large area free of pesticides herbicides a lot of nectar bearing plants milkweed everything that they need yeah and as dr wilson shared when he came down and did his studies with some of the bees just to see the diversity of the insect population and culture that was down there was astounding to him. It really was. And we'll also be touching up a little bit on, on bees here in a little bit. It's been about a year since we've talked about bees and we've got a little bit more coming about that. So stay tuned. And, um, I guess we, we talked about short term. We talked about what people can do now that it's, you know, summertime and what, ha what are we hoping to do long term for the monarch butterflies? Yeah. Um, in long-term, big picture is where we where we need to talk. Um, some of the efforts that we're doing this year are kind of fit in, within two categories. 
Um, we're going to expand some of our way stations in the Tabiona Skyrider Ranch area. Um, and the reason being is there's that huge easement, I think about 10,000 acres along the Duchesne River. Yeah, the wildlife sanctuary. And so anywhere you have um, long stretches of, of water, streams, rivers, those are perfect places where monarchs like to migrate because you have water sources, you naturally have water, um, flowering nectar sources. And so we're going to build a lot of way stations throughout that corridor. Um, so we're expanding those operations. But the other area is um, in research. Um, you know that our, our analytical lab and R&D, it's perfectly set up for determining chemical profiles of, yeah. of pl different plant species. Um, one of the questions that the scientific community has is, you know, we know that different milkweed species produce different types of cardenolides because cardenolides are just those group of compounds. But the question is, which cardenolide profiles are being produced by each species? Mm -hmm. But also within a single species, what's the variability that you're seeing? Whether it's new or old leaves, are they producing different cardenolide profiles? Do monarch butterflies prefer you know, one cardinalite profile over another, younger, older leaves. Yeah. So those are the type of things that we're going to investigate. So we're trying to hone in our research to help the broader scientific community as well. Fantastic. And with all this research that, we, that we're doing, obviously we probably have it recorded and written down. Is there maybe uh, another paper that you're working on with the monarch butterflies or hoping to have a paper about the monarchs? Yeah, we're, we're hoping um, that this fall, and it might go into next year as well, we're hoping to gather enough data to produce our first um, scientific paper on, uh, you know, that interaction between milkweed and monarch butterflies. That'd be fantastic. And I quickly want to tie back to what we were talking about, what you can do in preparation for summer coming. Well, it's here, but for those of you, summer's still coming. And how you can get ready for the monarchs to migrate into your area or maybe, you know, just take a nice little break at your hotel. We actually have a fun little activity book, I think is what it is. And what you'll do is you'll go to the website. And when you get to the main page, scroll all the way down to the bottom and you'll find the digital library. Click on that. When you see the search bar, type monarchs and you'll find your little activity book of things that you can do with your family and your kids uh, in your own backyard at home to kind of help the monarch butterfly. Yeah, that's a perfect activity for, for kids, for families. And I should mention too, the efforts that Young Living is doing to conserve monarch butterflies, it's great and it's impactful, but it re is relatively small. If we can get people on mass scales to change the way that they, you know, think about their gardens, the agriculture that they support, doing better in their own yards to help conserve monarch butterflies, doing that on a larger scale, that's really where you're going to see a huge impact. Yeah, for sure. You're absolutely right. You know, and it it's all about spreading the awareness. Absolutely. So you've listened to this podcast. And so what we would love for you to do is obviously to share this with a loved one, friend, family, whatever it may be, share it to your feed and just spread the awareness about the monarch butterflies. There's, there's so much that needs to be done. And now that we know what we need to do, all we have to do is just do our part, plant a little bit of milkweed, uh, you know, or get rid of the pesticides and the herbicides that are in your backyard. And uh, even if you don't have an area to plant or whatever, simply spreading the awareness is taking a step in the right direction and, and being part of, you know, this, this great movement. Absolutely. Great. So we're talking about pollinators right now. And, you know, obviously we've talked about bees before with Dr. Joseph Wilson and our efforts and, and working with him. And so I, I kind of want to just talk about the other pollinators that we're also doing some research on, and, and that's the native pollinators, bees. And, and not specifically any bees in general, but 
all bees just besides the honeybee. We don't really care about the honeybee right now. He's kind of the bad guy <laughs> in our story. So if you have any uh, updates uh, on bees and the research that we're doing on there, I'd love if you could share it. It's been about a year since we've had Dr. Joseph Wilson on the podcast, and uh, I think it's time for a little bit of an update. Yeah. So a lot of the research that um, you did with Joe Wilson last year was looking at which bees, whether they're native or non-native, which bee species and in which numbers are present you know, at our farm in, in Mona, in France, but also, you know, here in Lehigh at our global headquarters. So this year we're going to build off of that research. Um, and what we're looking at is how do bee species, whether they are native or non-native to this region, how do they impact the lavender? And we're trying to answer that in two different ways, both the immediate impact as well as long-term impact. So the immediate impact focuses on what, you know, if, if lavender is being pollinated by a bee species, how does that impact the essential oil yield and composition? Yeah. So that's that immediate impact. But then long-term impact is seed set. So if the, a pollinator is coming and which pollinator is coming, how does that impact the both the number of seeds that are produced, but also that seed viability? You know, how many will germinate in the future generation? Yeah, because obviously lavender can't self-pollinate. Exactly. And so that's why we need these pollinators to help carry these lavender seeds uh, to help the lavender population increase and to stay as vibrant and as good as it is right now. So the I definitely am extremely interested in seeing if there is a way that they do alter or improve or maybe they don't improve the quality of the lavender. That That's always been my curiosity is to see what exactly they're doing to the composition of the oil itself. And obviously, if they're helping the composition, we need a lot more bees, <laughs> a lot more bees. Um, but yeah, it's just fascinating. But we have some really exciting stuff to share at convention. Uh, so another great reason to come to convention so you can hear Dr. Wilson's talk yeah, on bees and the research that we've been doing. So, well, Tyler, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your passion, everything that you're doing uh, for the monarchs, for preserving them and making sure that they're all taken care of. And uh, I love the the work that you do because it's, it's really important work and it's work that should not go unnoticed because it's it's important. We only get one of everything on this planet and it's it's rare to see something come back once it's gone. Right. And so I just I love the efforts that we're that we're putting in to make sure that the monarchs are taken care of, that the bees are taken care of, that you're making sure our plants are taken care of, um, the soul of young living. So really appreciate everything that you do, what your team does, and uh, all your hard work and and your passion and your knowledge is is just great. I love it. Thanks, Jacob. It's been great to be here. And thank you for tuning into this episode of the Wild Drop. Remember, you can listen on iTunes, Spotify, on YouTube, and our website at www.youngliving.com. Don't forget to oil up Young Living family. This is Jacob Young, dropping out. Take care. <laughs>